Well, good morning, church family, once again. This morning we will be in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Um, And our passage begins, like many have in Proverbs, with the call of a father to a son, my son. Uh, Many of the Proverbs are framed this way, right? Teaching, uh, around a father teaching children. Um, I've talked about that a couple times, but it's got me thinking how I teach my own kids. But not only that, also making me aware of the other voices shaping them. So I figured I'd watch cartoons with them. Not that I need an excuse, but now it's justified. So so it doesn't take long watching cartoons to come across a common event. At some point, the main character will be in a crisis, and they don't know what to do. They need wisdom in this moment. And then, this is the wisdom they hear. Just follow your heart. You can do it. Trust yourself. And friends, it's not just kids who hear this message. Everywhere we turn, we are encouraged to follow our heart. It's in the songs we sing. Roxetta, when I was in 1988, when I was born, came out with Listen to Your Heart. It's in the ads we watch, the shows that we consume. And the assumption, right, the assumption is that those who are wise are the ones who trust themselves in every decision. The wise follow their own way, and the only way to get wiser is that you just need to listen to yourself better. So the question for us is, do you grow in wisdom by looking outside yourself or inside yourself? Is the way of your heart the way of wisdom? This question is at the core of our passage today. Because our greatest danger in gaining wisdom is found in our own hearts. Over the past few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Proverbs, a book that invites us to listen to the voice of wisdom. And while wisdom is a profound term, we've understood it as the ability to live well in God's world. Last week, we observed how those who seek wisdom will be protected from the world. And today, we see that the greatest danger to gaining wisdom isn't just out in the world, but found within our own hearts. And that those who keep getting wiser don't trust their heart, but rather entrust entrust their heart to God. And we'll see this in chapter 3 through three different things. We're going to look at words for your heart, the one to trust with your heart, and then two examples. All right, so words for your heart, the one to trust with your heart, and two examples. So, as we jump in, would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Proverbs 3, 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. 
Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, the word heart occurs over 46 times in the book of Proverbs, over 800 times in all the Old Testament. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. But what does it mean? I mean, when we say heart, is it the same thing they meant when they said it? I mean, we usually think of it as the place of emotion, right? It's where we feel things, where we feel things. And while it meant this for the Hebrews, it it also meant more. There's at least three ways the heart is used in the Old Testament. I mean, it can simply mean the central organ, the organ central for life. Uh, Even in 1 Samuel, there's a description of of a heart attack. But there's a second way. Uh, the heart is also where you think and reason. Uh, the Hebrew people, they didn't, they didn't really use m- the mind language or brain language, but rather your heart. Your heart was where you thought and where you reasoned. Examples of this all over the place, even verses 1 through 4, are going to kind of lean into this idea. But then maybe the most important idea is the heart is the place of desire and will. Not just emotion, but what, what we long for. And the place where we make decisions. The place where we make decisions. That's why throughout the Bible, the heart is so important. Proverbs 4.23 is going to say, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Your heart drives your daily life. From the beginning, and from the beginning, God cared about our hearts. I mean, think with me of Deuteronomy chapter 6. God's, one of God's greatest commandments. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And, and then he goes on. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. How? You teach them j- diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You'll bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And what we find in Proverbs 3 actually sounds a lot like this text here in Deuteronomy. It sounds much like this fundamental commandment. I mean, look, look at verses 1 through 4 with me, where we find the words for our heart. Verses 1 through 4, they're split in, it's split into two sections, verses 1 and 2, and then 3 and 4. In each section, in verse 1 and 3, starts with a negative command. And you notice, right, he doesn't say, remember my teaching, but rather, do not forget my teaching. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? Well, I think it's sort of like uh, when I tell my son not to climb on the countertop, uh, because he does it all the time, every day. I know it's something that he's prone to do, so I tell him, don't do it. And throughout this passage... We are instructed not to do certain things because the author knows how prone we are to it. How prone we are to it. Here in verse 1, the wise know that the heart is forgetful. And this forgetfulness, it, it might be a slip of the mind, but, you know, we don't remember everything. But it's also a willful, it can also mean a willful disobedience, a willful forgetting. Oh, I didn't know that. 
our hearts so easily forget the teachings and the commandments. And so the second half of this verse instructs our hearts to keep them, to keep them at the core of our being. There's no better argument for scripture memory here, is there? And everyone said amen. Uh, There's no better argument. And these words for our heart, notice they're for our good. Verse 2 tells us they lead to length of days and years of life and peace, peace. It's the word shalom, which is a life that is in perfect right relationship with God, man, and the world. God's words lead to this. But the words for our heart continue in verse 3 with a second section. Look with me. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Which is a weird way to phrase it, right? I mean, he doesn't say, hey, you, you don't forsake steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, don't let them forsake you. What's going on here? What's he mean by this? I mean, he says this because when steadfast love and faithfulness are seen together, or these aren't abstract virtues, but these are the things that belong to God. So the father says to the son, do not lose sight of God's steadfast love and faithfulness towards you. Do not lose sight of that. I mean, Proverbs 6, 6, or Proverbs 16, 6, uh, 6, 6 is about ants and stuff. We'll get there. But Proverbs 16, 6, clarifies even more connecting steadfast love with atonement from iniquity. Steadfast love and faithfulness from atonement, uh, atonement from iniquity. In other words, he's telling the son, remember what God has done for you. Don't let the good that God has done for you leave you. You need to remember God's commands, but you also need to cling to God's everlasting love for you. Cling to what God has done for you. Because our hearts, when left on their own, they forget God's words and they disregard his love, his salvation for us. And so he says, bind it around your neck and write it on the tablet of your heart. Right? This isn't just like a, a necklace with a verse on it that you can buy at, you know, Mardell. But, but that you're, at your innermost being, you would know God's love for you. That you would remember his words and his works. What's it involve? It involves reading his word regularly, speaking it to others, remembering what God has done for you. I mean, we're going to talk about trusting in God in a second, but you can't trust him if you don't know his word and his way. And the promise is, the promise is that you will have favor and success in the sight of God and man because the promises of Proverbs are not only eternal in the sight of God, but also temporal in the sight of man. And if you want to live rightly in God's world, you want to have wisdom, then you'll seek wisdom by drenching your heart in God's commands and in his love for you. So what's next? After the words for our heart, then we find the one to trust with our heart. Verses 5 through 8. Because it's more than just remembering God's words. Our hearts need to not only know about God, but our hearts need to fully trust God. Because here we see that wisdom, it's not just what you know, but it's who you trust. Wisdom isn't just what you know, it's who you trust. Look with me at verses 5 through 6. And if you've been around church 
for a while if you've, you know, stepped into a Mardell store again, you get your necklace, but also, you probably know this verse. It's what we might call a coffee mug verse. I was talking with someone earlier. This verse is above, above their bed. Uh, we know this verse, right? A coffee mug verse. You'll find it plastered on coffee mugs, stitched in pillows, painted on plates. My grandma hall had plates all over her wall uh, with verses painted on it, and this was one of them. And, and you guys know that not just any verse makes a coffee mug cut. I mean, think about Proverbs 26:11, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool that repeats his folly. It's God's word, but it's not making the coffee mug. And Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is rightly popular. It rightly is because of how simple and yet all-encompassing it is. I mean, it's the core of our passage. Because I mentioned, as I mentioned, wisdom isn't just about what you know, it's about who you trust. And the command for us in verse 5 is to trust the Lord with all our heart. But what is trust here? What does it mean to trust? We're given two examples later, but the word trust here has the idea of throwing yourself down in complete reliance. Trusting God means holding nothing back. You're all in. You don't have a backup plan. Right? I mean, you've allocated all your assets into this one stock, and by it, you succeed or fail, which is a treacherous thing right now. A good illustration comes from uh, 2 Kings 18.5, where we learn about King Hezekiah. We're told that he trusted in the Lord, which means he tore down all the idols, everything else that the people had put their trust in, but also... He, we're told that he held fast to the Lord and did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Trusting the Lord takes remembering the teachings one step further. Trusting the Lord means putting his words into practice, walking the path wherever it leads, rising or falling with that path. And it's not a, it's not a trust God and something else, Right? It's not trust God and money, trust God and, you know, political power, accomplishments, pleasure. It's trust God, full stop. In fact, uh, verse 6 is meant to clarify what it means to trust the Lord with all your heart. It clarifies, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, when the Bible says acknowledge, what, I don't know what that makes you think of, but I know what it makes me think of, right? It's the football player after he scores the touchdown, right? Acknowledge God, right? Not here. The, the word's actually much deeper. It essentially means to know, to know that in all your ways, you will know God. In all your ways, walk with him. You know, we often think about trusting God in the big moments, right? The job changes, the personal crises. That's when we need wisdom, that's when we need to trust God. But the picture here is of ways, ways and paths. Same uh, semantic word. Friends, the path of wisdom starts in the everyday. That's what this is telling us. If you want to become wise, you must trust God in the mundane, the small things, the everyday. That's the only way to truly grow in wisdom. A friend of mine uh, compares it to the difference between the Matrix and the Karate Kid. Hopefully you've all seen these. Um, in the Matrix, right, Keanu Reeves, he, he gets an upload, and all of a sudden he says, I know Kung Fu. 
which is a pretty good Keanu Reeves impression. But, <laughs> thanks. I know Kung Fu. All of a sudden, right? But the Karate Kid is a little bit different. It's a little bit different. He doesn't learn martial arts all at once. Instead, Danny, Daniel, Daniel LaRusso, has to show up day after day, often doing tasks that don't make sense. Often doing tasks that don't make sense. But in the end, training him to be an expert in martial arts. The daily, the mundane, the regular tasks, the daily plodding one foot in front of the other. What are the daily ways that you walk with God? What are the daily ways? Not the big decisions, the big things. We can talk about those, but what are the daily ways that you walk with God, that you know Him in your everyday? Do you regularly pray? What about how you treat your kids or your roommates? Do you feel like your world is falling apart as the stock market tumbles? Do you care for those that are different than yourself? Do you seek justice and compassion? Do you work hard? The list could be so much longer, longer than the book of Proverbs itself. But if we are going to grow in wisdom, it's essential to trust God with our whole heart, with the day in and the day out stuff of our lives. Not only remembering God's commands, but putting them into action every day. And when we seek to know God in our everyday, he will make the path of our life straight. But it's not, it's not natural for us to trust God, is it? In the second half of verse 5, the Father tells us, do not lean on your own understanding. He says this because he knows it's our default. Just like Frank Sinatra's classic song, My Way. For what is a man, what, he, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. He says, I faced it all, and I stood tall, and did it my way. The greatest good for Frank was that he leaned on his own understanding. And friends, we live in a day and an age when you can do whatever you want. You really can. I'm convinced so much of our anxiety really comes from just the plethora of options before us. We can chart our own path, lean on ourselves like never before, and not only do we have the opportunity to do that, but we're told that going your own way is really the only way to find happiness in this life. It's amazing to me how many people just go their own way who rarely consult others, let alone consulting God. People who make daily decisions just because they can, just because they can, because they want to. And Proverbs 3 tells us you can't trust your heart on its own because your heart will never make your path straight. Our hearts on their own are fickle and treacherous. They lead us into disaster. What we need is to trust God with our whole heart. So what's essential for trusting God? Look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. To trust God, you must humble yourself before God and turn from evil. Don't you know, some of the wisest people are the ones who know their own foolishness. Some of the wisest people know their own tendencies and issues. Some of the wisest people know that there are limits and know their own limits. 
Now, you might be thinking, Jordan, do you just want me to hate myself and doubt myself all the time? Look, everyone doubts themselves. But the answer to our insecurities and anxieties is not trust yourself more. Contrary to the modern-day message, the answer is not inside you. It's not. You don't need to look inside yourself, but outside yourself first. And when you do, when you trust your heart to God, day in and day out, he'll give you a new heart that you can trust, a heart that desires him and his ways. Look, we need to know ourselves. We need to know ourselves well. But knowing ourselves actually starts by knowing the one who created us. We need to know ourselves within a trusting relationship with God and others. And if you trust God, he will not let you down. The one who created the heavens and the earth with a word. The one who promised Abraham and Sarah a son and a future. Who raised up Moses to deliver his people and lead them. Who brought his people brought his people to the promised land, who raised up King David, who forgave King David when he so tremendously sinned, the one who then forgave his people again and again, even though they rebelled and forgot his commands. He is the one who became an infant, God with us, who showed us his ways and invited us into his rest, the one who made a way for us to know him forever, by paying the penalty of our sin, the penalty we couldn't pay, by taking our place and our shame and satisfying it on the cross. Just as verse 3 said, God loves you and he is faithful. This is the God who you are called to trust with your, own, with your whole heart. Now, would you rather trust your own way? Your own meager abilities? Or the God who never fails. The God who promises to give you a new heart. And when you trust him with your whole heart, it'll be like healing to your body. Refreshing like a cold glass of water on a hot day. So what does this trusting look like in practice? What does this look like in practice? The author gives us two different examples in verses 9 through 12. And these two examples, they're meant to kind of highlight extremes in life, okay? As a way of saying, uh, you know, if you can trust God in these two extremes, opposite extremes, then you can probably figure out all the stuff in the middle. All right, so first, we find that a trusting heart glorifies God in giving. The first extreme is wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce, because a trusting heart glorifies God in giving. Notice, the, notice specifically the first fruit language. This is really significant. Uh, I mean, the example, the whole example is framed in an agricultural society. So the first fruits would be the beginning of the harvest, right? The first pressings of the grape, the best stuff, which means, uh, which means the, farther, the farmer may give God, give to God, before he even knows what the rest of his harvest is going to be. Because he's giving at the beginning. And it takes a while. He's giving to God not just the best, but giving before he really knows what his whole profit will be. Why? Because he's trusting God to provide. That's the picture here. Friends, we live in one of the wealthiest times throughout history. 
How do you honor God with your wealth? Notice that, I mean, Proverbs explains later, but the giving here, it's not just to the temple, but also to the poor. Uh, Proverbs, I think it's 1917, when you uh, lend to the poor, when you give to the poor, you lend to God. So he has both in mind here. And giving, the giving of our wealth, it's not the inclination of our heart on its own, is it? You probably know that pull, that tug. We are prone to just look out for ourselves. To believe that all we have is because of our own might, our own wisdom, our own way, and so we deserve it. Why would I get rid of it? But a heart that trusts in God knows it is only by God's grace that we have what we have. Of course, we have to work hard. That's coming in chapter 6 about the ants and everything. But at the end of the day, it is all God's blessings. How you honor God with your wealth is an example of how you trust God with your heart. How you honor God with your wealth is an example of how you trust God with your heart. When you honor the Lord with your wealth, God's abundance is not far behind. Now, at this point, a thoughtful listener has probably asked, are these promises for real? We've been reading through Proverbs a little bit. Are these promises for real? I I thought I might even play a fun game on who said it, the Bible or Joel Osteen, but I didn't want to get in trouble. So, because look at these pro- look at these promises long life peace favor and success straight paths healing refreshment overwhelming prosperity i mean you've got to be wondering is this some prosperity gospel how should we understand these promises because you're going to find them throughout proverbs of course each promise has its own nuance but let me provide five five quick things to keep in mind when we think about these promises in proverbs all right number one Uh, these words are true, okay? Pretty basic, but no matter what we say, we must affirm that these are God's words. They're not just, oh, some scribe was, you know, misunderstanding. Second, God's ways are best. I mean, not only in Proverbs, but throughout the Bible, we hear that God's ways are the only ways to true flourishing. It's the best life. And when you follow them, you generally have the best chance of experiencing flourishing in the biggest sense of the term not just material things but the biggest sense of the term but let me follow that with number three god's ways are not a technique for gaining wealth we everyone is looking for a technique to get ahead in fact that's how the fool is described that's how the fool is described we read that in chapter two read that in chapter two Uh, proverbs are not some mechanism to take advantage of to gain wealth This is what the fool does. The fool is trying to get ahead in life quickly. And notice, while there are tremendous promises, the focus is on knowing God. That's the real prize. Everything else is secondary. So these words are true. God's ways are best, but they're not a technique for gaining wealth. These promises present, these promises express a present and eschatological reality. All right? It's just a big way of saying these promises speak to our present reality, but also these promises are for the future. For, for we will only know the fullest expression in the resurrection and eternal blessing, blessed life with God. So while there may be some present realities to this, their greatest fulfillment is actually in the resurrection. 
in the blessing, in the eternal life with God. But then fifth, and most importantly, and this is where, this is where the prosperity gospel gets it wrong. I mean, some of the, a lot of these areas, but this is the big one. Remember the cross. At the end of the day, no matter what you think about these promises, you have got to remember that Jesus Christ is the wisest person who ever lived. The wisest person who ever lived. He trusted God with his whole heart. Wise, trusted God with his heart. And what, what did it lead him to? It led him to a cross, to shame, rejection, and death. So if the wisest person who ever lived didn't experience these temporal blessings, but rather suffered because of, because of what? Because of the joy set before him. There was a blessing, but it was set before him set before him in eternity, then we must understand that knowing God doesn't automatically lead to worldly health and wealth. This doesn't contradict Proverbs, but rather presents a more full picture to understand it. And really, as you read through the rest of the Proverbs, you get sort of, uh, speaks out of two, out of both sides of its mouth. That's the idiom I was looking for. In fact, Jesus himself says that followers should, should not be surprised by hardship. You can do everything right, <clears throat> but it doesn't guarantee blessing, which actually leads to our final example. I think it's why it's here. Because a trusting heart embraces God's fatherly discipline. Our last example stretches to the other extreme. If one extreme was wealth, the other extreme is not wealth. Look at verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof. It's a bit jarring when we come to these verses. It doesn't feel like it's fit, the rest of the text. I like what one scholar says. He says, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 presents a direct contradiction to the glib health and wealth subversions of the gospel, which appeal to verses 9 through 10. Like a good father, Yahweh's primary concern for his children is not that they live an easy life, but that they live a good life. And this requires discipline. What kind of discipline's in view, though? Well, there are at least two different ideas in view. The first one, we could call corrective, right? This is maybe the most plain, the first type. I mean, reading this verse assumes what will happen if the son doesn't remember the commands and trust God. And so he is, he's suffering some rebuke so that he will turn back to God. This is definitely in view, but there's also a second sense, which is, uh, which is a little bit more general. The word discipline here is actually the same word for instruction. We find it in um, chapter 1, uh, verse 8, I think. It's the same word for instruction. And so it seems that, that, that this can refer to other types of, of suffering that God is using to instruct, to train, to refine. I mean, so some of the biggest, uh, you know, ideas are around training or refining things that aren't pleasant but have an outcome that produces a wise person or produces produces an outcome in fact the book of hebrews it quotes these two verses the book of hebrews quotes these two verses with more of the second understanding in mind it's not really addressing disobedience but rather talking about persecution persecution that produces endurance and refinement, endurance, and refinement. So either way, either way, what we notice is it's addressing some type of suffering or trouble 
that one would despise or get weary of. The real question is, how will you respond? Because on our, on our own, our hearts will despise the Lord. Our, on our own, our hearts will despise this discipline from the Lord. We'll want to say, I don't deserve this. Our hearts want to curse God and turn away even further from Him when experiencing this distress. But a heart that trusts the Lord is not overcome by suffering, but rather turns that suffering into more wisdom. You might ask, how do I know if it's corrective or just training? I asked some friends last week, and a wise friend responded, does it really matter? And I think he's right. Of course, sometimes it may be clear that some trouble that, that some trouble is a natural consequence of sin, a natural result of sin, which needs repented of. But either way, when we, res- when we <clears throat> encounter hardships, we need to respond by turning towards God. We need to consider how this current trouble is producing in us qualities that God is seeking to, to create greater dependence on him. Greater endurance is how the New Testament will often describe it. Now I want to mention a caveat. This verse, it's not, this verse does not negate the, the need in our world to lament. Our world is full of tragedy and sorrow and acts of just evil. And when very tragic things happen, we must reject the cliche responses that can diminish suffering by glib words about God having a purpose for tragedy. I believe this is true, but at the same time, you need to know that's an insufficient response. Lament is not the same as despise. Lament is not the same as despise. Lament mourns the fallenness of our world. Lament cries out to God to put things right. Lament doesn't despise God, but it actually looks to him to act. Lament is a form of trust in God. That this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that God needs to act. We must lament. But we also must have a trusting heart that embraces the Lord's discipline and training. Because at the end of the day, God is not some vindictive and angry person. But he is the one who loves you and is seeking your good and your growth. Look at me at verse, look at verse 12. The Lord reproves whom he loves. Reproves the same word for chooses. As a father, the son in whom he delights. In many ways, it brings us back to the start of verse 3. If you suffer trials, God is not out to get you. He's not some vindictive person, but God loves you. And he wants the best for you. He doesn't want your life to be easy, but he wants you to know him. The big idea is that God will not leave you up to yourself. We've been talking about the heart. God will not leave you up to yourself. And it is a divine mercy. He will not abandon you to the way of your own heart. 
but he will do whatever he can to pursue you, to train you, to teach you to depend on him every day. It's a divine mercy that God does not leave us on our own. So this morning, as you reflect, do you trust God with your whole heart? The day in and the day out, the small, seemingly insignificant things, Are you setting aside your own way to follow his? Are you wise in your own eyes? Or do you seek humility? Do you fear God or do you take the path of evil? Are you keeping his commands in your heart? Do you read his word, memorize his word? Do you remind yourself daily that God loves you and is faithful? You will not find wisdom by following your own heart unless, unless your heart is completely trusting in God. If you want to grow in wisdom, know and trust God with your whole heart. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you desperate for new hearts. And so we throw ourselves at your feet in trust. For, Lord, we rise or we fall by your hand. Help us to drench our hearts in your word. That we would know it down in our very soul. And that we would not just know it, but walk in it every day. As we prayed this morning, may we not boast in ourselves. May we not think ourselves wise. But may we boast in you. For in you is our life and our breath, and our being. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.